Kinsey. Well, good morning. That was kind of heavy, wasn't it? You know, you, you, you get what you asked for. She said, is anything going on in your life right now that I can pray for? And I said, well, actually, yeah, there is. Uh, so my name is Todd Miles. Uh, I, I am a, well, as of like an hour ago, I'm no longer an elder at Henson Church. I just rolled off, and it was announced about an hour ago. And um, so I'm a member, just a member at Henson Church. And, but I'm, I teach theology at Western Seminary and church history and things of that nature. Uh, but that's not really what I came to tell you about. What I did come to tell you about is that I have a bit of a confession to make. You see, I, I live in southeast Portland, which is kind of the heart of hipsterville, right? But uh, I'm not a hipster. <laughs> Shocking, right, as you look at me. You, you, you might think, well, I thought everyone who lives in southeast Portland is hip and cool. Uh, no, that's not the case. I'm, I'm evidence of that. Uh, I'm actually a bit of a fraud, when it comes to living in Hipsterville. I'm a pretender, I'm a squatter, as it were. I, honestly, I, I live under the constant threat that the cool police are going to show up at my door and say to me, we just figured it out, you don't belong here. <laughs> and, and I'll say, you're right. <laughs> uh, thanks for letting me live here as long as you did. Uh, now. If you actually know, though, what you're looking for in a hipster, you'll, you'll recognize that, that I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not one in any sense. I'm, I'm not a fan of beer. I, I loathe coffee. I, 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 I have no desire to get on a bike or a skateboard or, or anything like that. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't act like a hipster, but, but behavior is not near as important as looking the part, especially when it comes to being cool. I don't bear the marks of a hipster. I'm absolutely incapable of growing a beard. This is like three days growth for me right now, right? My, my, my only body piercings that I have derived from the Legos that I stepped on on my way to the, the, the restroom this morning. My, my, I, I have no art on me at all. The, the, the only ink on me are the stains that I get from mishandling my own pens. And, and, and honestly, I, I really can't think of an inscription that I want tattooed on my body for like the next 25 minutes, let alone the next 25 years. And, and, and I mean, look at me. My, my arms are so skinny that what could be said? I, I, it, <laughs> it would have to be an abbreviated memo at best, right? So not not a hipster. Don't act like one, don't look like one. Behavior and marks, though, are the telltale signs of authenticity, aren't they? Self-attestation, I mean, I could get up and say, oh, I'm a hipster, really, I am, uh, but that's only going to get you so far. You, you need to play the part, you need to look the part, and, and in this fickle world that we live in right now, beauty is often in the eye of the beholder. It's, it's difficult, as we all know, to meet the expectations of, of those outside of us. And, and, and when the stakes are really high, when what you want to be is really important or what others need you to be is really important, it's, it's nearly impossible to 
meet those expectations. What about, what about when people don't really know what they need? They don't really know what they're looking for. What if you are the Lord of the cosmos who has come to rescue a people? But you don't look the part, not in their eyes anyway, not in their eyes. And you're not even acting the part as far as their expectations go. Well, this morning, we're going to look at two different royal entries of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first one in Jerusalem, where there's going to be a lot of confusion. There's going to be frustration, and there's going to be some rejection. The second royal entry is into the heavenlies, into the throne room of God, and it is an incredible royal entry. And in that one, there's not going to be any confusion. And as we study that second royal entry, I think we're going to see why people were so confused about the first one that we'll look at this morning. Today, if you're here, maybe you don't understand yourself to be a Christian. I would like for you in these next few minutes to consider what is your greatest need, really? What is your greatest need? To to quote the, the great theologian Bonnie Tyler, if you are holding out for a hero, what kind of hero are you actually looking for? What do you need? And, and, and if you know what you're looking for, how will you recognize him? Will you recognize his marks? And if you won't recognize his marks, how will you know when your Savior appears? And then who has the authority to bring clarity, clarity to your search? For the rest of you, Maybe you do understand yourselves to be Christians, followers of Christ. My my invitation is basically the same, but I'd also like you to think about this. How might better understanding of both myself and my Savior lead to better service and worship? Okay, so those are the things we're going to be considering this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible and you want to, uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, but before we get there, we're going to turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. And what we're going to find here is that outside of heaven, outside of heaven, praise is imperfect. Outside heaven, praise is imperfect. Uh, Look at this royal entry of Jesus, beginning verse 28. When he, that that is Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you, As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? Which is a pretty good question, right? Because it's his donkey. And so the disciples, they say, "Um, the Lord needs it. And it works. <laughs> it works. They, they get to take the donkey. They brought it to Jesus. After throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. 
Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. Okay, so by way of context for what I just read, this is near the end of Jesus' life. It's, it's in that, the beginning of the last week of his life. In just six days, five days, he's going to be tacked to a Roman cross and die. And, and so, but, but here Jesus is going into Jerusalem, and, and Jesus actually is the Messiah of Israel. He is the son of David, the king who has finally returned to his city. He's here in their midst. And, and what, what is being staged here is, is, is what we would call a royal entry into the capital city. And, and, and the disciples are totally behind all of this. The, we're told the multitude of disciples are praising God for all the mighty works that they had seen Jesus do. And Jesus' ministry, if you're, if you're familiar with what the Gospels say, Jesus' ministry had been one continuous stream of mighty deeds that, that demonstrated Jesus' right to be the king of the kingdom of God and that had also brought a very real foretaste of what the kingdom would be like when the king was on his throne. Word and deed in the kingdom, they come perfectly together in Jesus Christ. So what, what were these sayings? Well, the lame walked, the dead were raised, the sick were healed, the demonized were exercised, the hungry were fed, the poor had good news and hope preached to them. And of course, all of those things that Jesus did had been anticipated by the Old Testament prophets. That when the kingdom came, when the king returned, it would be like this. And so Jesus, from start to finish, had demonstrated his kingly worth. And he had done the exact things anticipated by the Old Testament prophets of the returning king. In verse 38, the people are praising God. This, this indicates that, that, that Jesus is the one they had been waiting for, or at least so they thought. He's, he, he's, he's an agent of God. He's a leader, but, but he's more than that. He's the king. And peace and joy are proclaimed as Jesus rides down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and then up, up into the holy city. Peace and joy proclaimed, just like at his birth. Remember at the birth of Jesus, the angels are singing, and they're singing of peace and joy. That's what happens when the king comes. It is good when the king arrives. But, but, there's always a but, and, and there definitely is here in verse 39. That excitement about Jesus is not unanimous, is it? The Pharisees, 
We say their name. We, you know, we want to boo and hiss, right? The, they're, they're the bummers at this great royal party. And, and, and they are concerned about this messianic confession. And, and they want to quell the fervor. They want to put it down as best they can. And, and it's not clear why. It's not clear exactly what they were thinking. Maybe, that, maybe they thought the praise was inappropriate. Maybe it was blasphemous. Maybe they were just thinking, you know, this isn't politically wise. This is going to rock the boat with the Romans. But for whatever reason, they order it stopped. But more than that, they tell Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke them. And, and Jesus' response is, is, is remarkable. He will not stop them. To Jesus, the disciples' praise of him is entirely right and proper. In fact, Jesus says they are compelled to praise. Matter of fact, if they were to stop, the very rocks would take up the anthem and begin singing. Have any of you been to, to Israel before? Okay, a few of you have. And so you know, it is one big rock garden, right? It's like... the. It's like a lunar landscape. I mean, anything green in Israel, it feels like, has been put there, not by God, but, but by a human, right? Uh, it, it's, there are so many rocks, so many rocks everywhere that it would have been an incredible scene to behold if the very rocks would take up the anthem. Now, I think Jesus is speaking figuratively here in, in this way. He's saying, look, if the inanimate creation can recognize her king, why can't the king's people? Why not indeed? Why can't the king's people recognize the Messiah? Within one week, the king's people would have their way. They would reject Jesus as Messiah. They would have him crucified on a Roman cross. And creation may have been able to recognize her savior, but neither the Roman Empire, the power brokers of the day, nor the people primed to receive her king, Israel, recognized him. And, and we have to ask why. What, what happened? Why the confusion? Why the rejection and the, the, the cruel maliciousness against this itinerant preacher, Jesus of Nazareth? If, if Jesus truly were the king that the disciples had proclaimed, why was his mission seemingly so easily destroyed? And what was to become of this kingdom that Jesus proclaimed when he died? Would the judgment that was supposed to accompany the kingdom, judgment on the enemies of God, never come? Would, would God's people never be vindicated? Would the creation not be renewed? Is the kingdom not going to come? And further, we, we need to consider Jesus himself. He, 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 didn't, he didn't look the part of a king, and he definitely didn't look the part of a king when he's hanging on a cross, right? His only regalia, royal regalia, was, was like a cruel joke, crown of thorns, to make matters worse. Now he bears forever the ignoble marks of crucifixion, holes in his hands and in his feet, in his side. They bear testimony, scars bearing testimony to his rejection. The marks of crucifixion are not the kinds of things that we associate 
with the marks of royalty. They're the marks of a common criminal, the marks of shame, the marks of embarrassment. We're left to ask, what kind of king is Jesus? Well, to answer that, let's go to Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 4 and 5. I don't have time to read all through it Revelation 4, so we'll just kind of talk through it, and then we'll hit Revelation 5 hard, because that's where Jesus shows up. In Revelation 4, what we find out is that in heaven, God is praised perfectly. In heaven, God is praised perfectly. In, in verses 1 and 2, John gets to kind of peek behind the curtain of the throne room of God. He gets to see what's going on there. And, and what he sees is God sitting on his throne, ruling, judging. And in verses 3 through 5, we have this picture of God the Father, I would say, and, and, and the Holy Spirit. There's all sorts of dazzling jewels. It's what you would expect in the very throne room of God, I suppose. And then around the throne of God, there are these 24 elders, and they're sitting on 24 thrones that surround the throne of God. And, and there's, there's debate about what these beings are. Who are these 24 elders? And some believe that, that they represent a, a ruling class of humanity. Some believe it's a ruling class of angels or, or heavenly beings. And, and so, okay, so I told you I teach theology at Western Seminary, right? So I'm here to tell you exactly who they are. I don't know. I don't know. Three most important words in theology. I don't know. Don't, don't be afraid to use those. Um, but at, at any rate, what we're drawn to is just how awesome this scene is. There's, there's a reference to the seven spirits of God. I, I do think that represents the Holy Spirit, the the fullness of the Spirit of God um, who, who resides before the throne of God. And, and then, as we work through Revelation 4, we encounter four strange beings who are covered with eyes and wings. And, and again, so who are they? Who are they, Todd? Three most important words. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what these beings are. Sorry if you were expecting like great answers on that. But, but I, I, I think probably the eyes represent unending vigil. They are keeping watch. Nothing is escaping their notice. But as bizarre as these beings are, our attention is drawn away from what they look like to what they say. And in unceasing praise before the throne of God, they proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're joined by 24 elders who cast their crowns before the throne of God, and they proclaim, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is what praise in heaven looks like. And, and we should pause and, and consider, what is God praised for? Like right now in heaven, what is he praised for? And, and what we find all through the book of Revelation is that God is praised for his character, for, for who he is, as well as his role of creator and savior and judge. All through the book of Revelation. If you want to know, like right now, what is God praised for? For who he is and his role as creator 
his role as Savior and his role as judged. And, and in this passage here, in Revelation 4, he's praised as being the eternal self-existent one. He always has been, he is right now, and he always will be. He is eternal. He's also self-existent. He's, he's necessary. He's not contingent, right? There's no possible universe where God doesn't exist, unlike you and me. Right, there's lots of scenarios where you and I don't exist. You can probably think of, did you ever watch like Back to the Future, that movie? That's when I was in high school, right? Back to the Future, where you go back and tamper with the past and suddenly your mom and dad don't meet and pretty soon like your brothers and sisters are disappearing from the family photo. You've seen that before? So, and, and, and that just demonstrates how contingent we are, right? There's lots of scenarios where you don't exist, but there is no scenario where God does not exist. He is a necessary being. He's, he's praised as being creator, the one who exercises sovereign governance over everything that he has made. And what we find here is that there's two kinds of things that exist. There's God and there's stuff that he made, right? And, and if you're something that God made, then you're not God. And if you're God, then you're not something that was, that was made. We call that, in theology, we call that the creator-creature distinction, in short form, it's this, God is God, and you are not, right? And you may think, well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Well, uh, you walk down the street here in Corvallis, definitely up in Portland, you'll find all sorts of people who are going sideways on that one, right? It's very, very important. It's established in the very first verse of the Bible. But what is of supreme importance to consider before moving to chapter 5, Revelation 5, is that God is on his throne. And he is being praised by preachers who were, by, by creatures, maybe they're preachers too, they're creatures who were created to praise. And everything is just as it ought to be. God on his throne and the perfect worshipers of God bowing down in worship before him. It doesn't get more perfect than that. And then we get to Revelation chapter 5. And what we find here is that in heaven, only the perfect are praised. In heaven, only the perfect are praised. But in verses 1 through 4, there's this jarring moment where we realize heaven, we have a problem. Heaven, we have a problem. Look at the first four verses of Revelation 5. Then I, this is John talking, he's writing. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel. I like that, right? in contrast to all the wimpy angels that are out there, right? Yeah. I, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Okay, 
in order to understand what's going on here, we have to ask, well, what is this scroll? It seems to be a big deal. John's brokenhearted that no one can open the scroll. What's in the scroll? And if you were to read into chapter 6 and following, you find that the scroll contains God's redemptive plan and the future history of God's creation. The scroll contains the balancing of the scales of justice, finally. The, the vindication of God's people, finally. And the judgment on the wicked, finally. Right? Contained in that scroll is the definitive divine answer to the question that has buggered humanity ever since the fall. How long, O oh Lord? How long? It is the definitive divine answer to everything that is wrong in this world. The definitive divine answer to everyone who has ever thought that, that God wasn't paying attention, that, that God's not keeping score. Or, or, or maybe you ask, God, don't you care? Don't you care about the brokenness of this world? Don't you care about the suffering? When are you going to do something? And that's what's in the scroll. That's what's in the scroll. For, 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 for all of you here who have experienced or are experiencing tragedy or abuse or injustice, and, and, and you have cried out to the Lord and just asking, Lord, don't you see what's going on? Why don't you do something? Why don't you speak? Don't you care? You need to know that God does see everything. He hears everything, especially your cries. And he does care. He does care. God will make everything right. Everything right. His answer and his response is written in this scroll. And when those seals are broken, the divine action will begin that we've been waiting for for so long. But there's a problem here. Heaven's looking for a hero, someone to initiate this divine plan. But, but no one is found who can break the scrolls and kickstart this entire thing. No one's worthy to execute the justice of God. No, there's, there's no one found who can initiate divine judgment. And, and it's not for a lack of applicants or a thorough search, is it? I mean, they look literally everywhere in all time, right? Isn't, isn't that what it says there? They said, it says, um, no one was found worthy to open the scroll, or even to look in it. No one in heaven or earth or under the earth, no one anywhere at any time, living or dead, was found. No one. And it's here that we're confronted with a sobering truth. We may want for God to execute his justice, but that justice is too white hot for us to touch. We, we might want for God to get serious about sin, but he's way more serious than we even imagine. We might want for God to deal with sin, but God's war on sin is going to cut through every human heart, yours and mine. Not one of us is worthy to open the scroll. Not one of us is worthy to initiate divine justice. 
Not one of us is worthy to even enter into God's holy presence. And this is why John breaks. He's just been given a view of the throne room of God where everything is exactly as it ought to be. He sees God in his holiness. He hears perfect praise of the holy and sovereign Lord and yet confronted with the question, Lord, when will you put everything to rights? The answer appears to come back for lack of a qualified man, never. Lord, when are you going to vindicate the righteous? For lack of a champion, apparently, never. Now, John is not naive. He doesn't have this like Pollyanna-esque view of the world. He, he knows the depth of injustice, the, the vileness of human depravity. And, and I think this is why it's so frustrating to him. God has to act, right? It must be answered by God. It, it has to be answered by God. The hope of humanity and creation is that God will act. But there is found no one worthy to initiate that long sought after divine action. And in contrast to what John has just seen where everything is as it ought to be, and then it's almost as though it's totally aborted, it's too much for him. He breaks. The translation I read, he wails and wails. He weeps and weeps. Until verse 5. When heaven's hero is found. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Finally, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, we're told. The fulfillment of promises made to the patriarchs 1,800 years before the time of Jesus Christ. One would come from the tribe of Judah, a promise was made, one like a lion who would rule with a scepter that he would never, ever lose. He will rule forever. He is, we're told, the root of David, the fulfillment of a covenant made with David a thousand years before the time of Christ. A member of David's line, a son, a royal son, would become king and would reign forever. And we're told here that he is worthy to reign. Why? Because he has conquered. Because he's conquered. And surely, surely this is the hero that the people of Israel were waiting for. This is one who clearly has the marks, right? He, he looks, he's got to look like a king. This is someone who, quite frankly, would make that mild-mannered, itinerant preacher from Galilee seem a bit wanting, right? This is the kind of king that the Pharisees were looking for. Surely this is no would-be king who would allow himself to be tripped up by interreligious and political conflicts like Jesus was. But look at verse 6. Who in the heavens is this? John is greeted by two surprises. Verse 6. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. The surprise number one is that he expects to see a lion, and he turns and he finds a lamb standing 
as though it had been slain. The lion of Judah is in fact simultaneously a lamb. But not a lamb in terms of power, not like weakness, but in terms of sacrifice. We think, how? How could this be? How could the one worthy, because he had conquered, be the subject of sacrifice? The lion of Judah who conquered looks like a lamb who had been slain? That doesn't make any sense. But it does because we learn exactly what kind of hero was necessary to save God's people and usher in the kingdom of God. See, the the people had expected a kingdom restored to Israel. They had expected a political solution to their problems. They had expected judgment on the enemies of God. They had expected vindication for God's people. They had expected this. and, And they were right to expect all of that because that's what the scriptures taught would happen. So so where's the misunderstanding? Where's the confusion? For creation to be renewed, for the curse to be lifted, for all of the ruling principalities to be brought into subjection, sin has to be dealt with. Most importantly, for there to be any people of God, their sin has to be dealt with. Their sin has to be judged. You know, if you think about it, God could have brought about his kingdom without the cross of Christ. The problem is, there would have been no one in it except one person, the king, Jesus. We wouldn't be there. No one would be there because we are not worthy to enter that kingdom until our sin is taken care of because we come defiled. We come broken. We come rebellious. And in God's holiness, that must be answered. We are not fit for the kingdom of God. And we cannot make ourselves fit for the kingdom of God. But God can. And God did. Here we see the majestic wisdom of God on display. That which lifted the curse and brought about the subjection of God's enemies. Remember, this is a conquering lion was a self-sacrificial act that brought about the redemption and ransom of his people. And, And that's the gospel, isn't it? That God has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. God has made atonement for our sin. God, through his son, has paid the penalty for sin and has defeated the devil, things that we never, ever could have done on our own. And the promise of the gospel is that if you repent of your sins, if you confess that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, for the reasons that we we will talk about in the rest of our moments here, you will be saved. That is the gospel. That is what makes you fit for the kingdom of God motivated by the holiness of God and the love of God for you. If you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, what I just explained to you is the gospel. That's what makes a person a Christian. A Christian is someone who repents of their sin and believes that God has made atonement for your sin, that God has conquered evil in this world through an atoning sacrifice where God took it upon himself. God the Son died for sin and rose 
that we might be justified. If you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, talk to someone here who does, and they can explain more about how this works. Look at verse, verses 7 and 8. He, that is this lamb, went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saint. And, and, and what we find here is that in heaven, Jesus is praised because Jesus is God. This lamb approaches the throne. He takes the scroll from the strong right hand of God. And then John gets the second surprise. The heavenly beings who had surrounded the throne of God and were offering perfect praise to God the Father seated on the throne, they, as it were, turn from the one seated on the throne and fall down in worship before the Lamb. And I think this is the strongest argument for the deity of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. I mean, don't we have to believe that if anybody who exists has their theology of worship right, wouldn't it be those beings in the throne room of God? I mean, don't you think that they know who is supposed to be worshiped and who is not without confusion? If, if, if there's any beings in heaven or on earth who have a correct understanding of worship, who are committed to monotheism, who understand the implications of worshiping the wrong being, doesn't it have to be them? And yet in the presence of God the Father, seated on his throne, they fall down before the Lamb. Now, God puts up with a lot of false worship here on earth but I don't think he puts up with false worship in his own throne room, right? And if Jesus Christ is not God, then what would you expect? You would expect they fell down in worship before the Lamb and fire went out from the throne enveloping those beings for their pagan and blasphemous worship. But we don't get that, do we? They fall down before the Lamb and they sing and they sing, and they sing. Don't take worship of Jesus lightly. When we sing here on Sunday mornings, it's not just the precursor to the sermon, a mere formality to endure or anything like that. We're joining the heavenly host in participation of a transcendent and weighty activity. We are declaring the worth and the deity of Jesus Christ. See, what we do here on Sunday morning here matters precisely because of what we sing, what we confess in our singing. When we praise Jesus Christ, when we grant to him glory that is reserved for God alone, if he, you need to recognize that if he is not actually fully God, then we are committing horrific blasphemy, worshiping someone who ought not to be worshiped. But... If this text is true, if Jesus is worthy, if he is divine, then our praise is just and it is right, it is orthodox, it's true, it's our duty, and it's our delight. Look at verse 9, the, the nature of what goes on here. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals. Why? Because you were slain, you were slaughtered, and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. So like you, you can't count them, but then you add thousands and thousands on top of that, right? They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. John says, I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. The elders fell down and worshiped. We see that the lion was worthy to take the scroll because he had conquered. But what exactly had he done? He was worthy precisely because he had offered up his life as a sacrifice. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross accomplished the salvation of peoples from every tribe and language and people and nation. The the, the promise made to Abraham 2,000 years before the time of Christ that all the nations would be blessed through him has been kept in Jesus. And notice that the language and the theology of praise here, where they just pile on attribute after attribute after attribute. And and, and every time I read that, I'm I'm reminded of Lord of the Rings because a lot of stuff in the Bible reminds me of Lord of the Rings, where where Frodo is being tasked to take the ring to Mordor, if, if you don't know um, spoiler, right? It's been out forever, the movies. <laughs> books are like 50 years old. I don't even feel guilty about this. Uh, Frodo's being tasked with this job that's just horrifyingly difficult. And, and, and he's just this little hobbit venturing into the land of the most heinous evil ever. And, and, and he says, how am I supposed to do that? Like, I'm just this little hobbit dude, right? And, and Gandalf, who's been guiding him, says, you must use such strengths and hearts and wits as you have. And Frodo says, but I have so little of any of those things, right? Jesus Christ has everything maximally, we're taught here. He has everything it takes maximally, exceedingly, magnificently. So so what do we do with this? Well, model your worship after the worship in heaven. How much about worship, whether the singing or the praying or the sermon, it's really about us and, and meeting our needs. How, how often do you walk out of a worship service, complain about the music or the preaching? God, with that guest preacher who just went on and on and on, right? That rather than asking each other what we thought of the worship service, maybe we should ask, I wonder what the Lord thought of our worship today. What did he think of that? Worship in heaven focuses on who God is. God is creator, God is savior, God is judge, all of his attributes. Our worship should be like that too. Notice how theological that is. Theology is the language of worship. Theology is the language of worship. That's that's why the the, the pastors, the leaders here, work so hard on crafting a worship service. They're they're teaching you to worship. Right? Theology is language of worship. What, Todd, are you telling me I have to go to Western Seminary so I can worship better? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Exactly what I'm saying. That was kind of a joke, but only kind of, right? No, you don't have to do that. But you should be learning. Take every opportunity you can to learn so that you can worship better because of who God is. You have to be sincere, right? You have to be sincere in your worship. But sincere 
stupid worship doesn't honor God. It just means that you're sincerely stupid in your worship, right? Be right about it because God is who he is. And if you sincerely say false things about him, you're not honoring him. No matter how much sincerity you have, know who God is. Know who God is. And then be cross-centered. Be cross-centered. Worship in heaven is cross-centered. Ours should be likewise. Likewise. Apparently, heaven is not able to get over the cross. They're still stunned by it, right? Well, we shouldn't be able to get over the cross either. We shouldn't be able to. Heaven is stunned at the lengths to which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit went to reconcile us to God. Why aren't we? Perhaps because our view of ourselves is higher than it ought to be. Maybe it embarrasses us to think about what was necessary to save us. After all, I mean, a a really small salvation would require only a small savior. But the great reformer Martin Luther, he, he would have none of that. He demanded that people look at the cross and derive our theology of God and of man from the cross. At the cross, we see the the perfect commingling of God's mercy and power and holiness and love. We we also see the depths of human sin at the cross. And so Luther would say, do you want to understand the love of God? Do you want to understand the holiness of God? Look at the cross. Do you want to understand how great our need is, how deprived humans are, how broken we are? Well, look at the cross. A great salvation requires a great salvation savior the cross of christ brings laser sharp focus to the majesty of god and it puts to death the lie that humans now we're not that bad we just need a little help meditate on the cross explore the cross celebrate the cross of christ so much of the gospels are committed to retracing the events of jesus last week before his crucifixion the death of christ on the cross is the greatest event in all all of human history, the greatest event. In fact, the only thing that could trump the death of Christ on the cross would be if he managed to get up from the dead. He did. He did. One way of celebrating the cross is through the Lord's Supper. And it's our way of remembering what Jesus accomplished on the cross. This is a Last Supper meal, isn't it? It's a Last Supper meal. But our destiny is not to celebrate the Lord's Supper forever. The day will come when this Good Friday Supper, kind of a rehearsal for us right now, one day that will give way to the marriage feast of the Lamb. One day, this activity of remembrance will give way to the recognition of sight we will see the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll recognize him by his marks. In one of the hymns that we often sing, crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side, those wounds yet visible above in beauty glorified. No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eye at mysteries so bright. One day we will see the Lord Jesus Christ and we will see his scars. They're the marks of a hero, the marks of our great God and King, 
and we will with joy fall before him. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father in heaven, what, what an awesome scene this is, and we thank you that you have revealed that in Scripture to us for the clarity that it gives us about who the Lord Jesus is. And Father, now as we go and we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we pray, Father, that we would do so with sincerity of heart and with truthful insight, truthful knowledge. Enable us to worship you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.